Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the ideas, events and policies that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and I am Director of ECFR. And today we have a very special podcast on geoeconomics, which is the topic of a great new collection of essays that we have just published at ECFR. And I'm joined by three members of the World Economic Forum's Agenda Council on Geoeconomics, which I chair. And we met them recently at a summit in Abu Dhabi. And after talking to them about what geoeconomics means in general, I will talk to my colleague, Sebastian Dulin, a senior policy fellow in our Berlin office, who will explain to us what this strange new term, geoeconomics, means for Europe and how Europe will do in a geoeconomic world. Gideon, why don't you go first and, and, and tell us um, what you think geoeconomics is and how uh, a bigger phenomenon it is at the moment. Well, you know, it's interesting. In world history, obviously, there's been a whole lot of conflict, a whole lot of contestation, often over very traditional sets of issues, uh, security issues, military issues, territorial issues, and so forth. And trade issues have usually or often been seen as an alternative to that, an area of of cooperation, an area of mutual benefit. But what we've seen, I think, now, or increasingly seeing, is as much of the world think, mercifully, thank God, moves past many of the old kinds of traditional conflict and territorial struggles and battles and where things like Crimea or the South China Sea are notable for being unusual exceptions in the contemporary environment, much of what used to be the normal practice of contestation among nations is coming into these arenas of trade, of economic interdependence and engagement. And so a mutual sum, a mutual positive sum gain can still have differential benefits. And so people are trying to play that game of cooperation and trade and economic integration, but at the same time, not just produce maximal collective goods, but maximizing their individual shares. And that introduces geopolitical conflict or into economic uh, areas. And that gives you what we've been talking about as a sort of geoeconomics mode, which brings sort of contestation and jockeying for position and relative gains thinking into areas that also have a common collective mutual positive sum logic. So Hina, you've been both weirdly uh, a foreign minister and an economics minister. I mean, to what extent do you think those two worlds are becoming intertwined? What is competition about in today's world? Yeah, actually, I think we've we're moving beyond the time where the intertwining of politics and economics is now. And then, you see, for, for instance, initially there was an area, area or an era where politics uh, superseded and preceded economic uh, linkages. Uh, then we moved to an area where we thought it was economics which is going to move the trends and make alliances, etc. Now we're moving in the realm which is somewhere in the middle of the two where the contestation between countries on the economic realm is making them what, what, what I would call geoeconomic, which is like the contest of politics is being played by uh, geography and how economics is being played into that geography. And uh, I think the, uh, the, the big story over there uh, has been how China has been using its influence within the area or the arena or the uh, physical location to make a mark and to uh, change alliances 
as we move forward. So this is a story which is still in the making and uh, geoeconomics clearly is today playing a huge role. Uh, it is taking us away from possibly the world as we imagined it, which is globalization for everyone, where everyone is an end beneficiary, to a world now where we have selective beneficiaries uh, based on the location that you have and the tilt that you have. So, Parag, do you want to lay out some of the new battlegrounds then? If uh, we are in a geoeconomic world, sure. where do the different players uh, look for relative advantage? Sure. What I love about the term geoeconomics actually is that it preserves the prefix geo. So we bring in the geography and we don't take for granted that this interdependent world exists in and of itself. It wouldn't exist if we didn't have connectivity of various kinds. So there, there are three kinds of infrastructures that are part or intimate to this geoeconomic playing field and those are energy, transportation and communications. So we have contests today over uh, where the routes of oil and gas pipelines are or where liquid natural gas uh, refineries are, for example, and which markets or which countries are going to be suppliers and which, uh, which markets are going to have the most value added from the revenue sharing of those. There is a component of a very geopolitical conflict today, Ukraine, which is actually partially about uh, who controls the value of gas flowing through Gazprom pipelines that span Russia and Ukraine and flow into Europe. So that's energy. Then there's transportation. Uh, Hina mentioned the, uh, you know, the role of China in penetrating the countries around on its borders uh, through transportation networks, and that is going to facilitate commercial access for China to import raw materials and to export goods, and it's going to make China a more efficient trading power. So that's another role of infrastructure in ultimately uh, sort of uh, contributing to Chinese economic grant strategy, as it were. And then, of course, there's communications, the internet, which is very much part of this competitive connectivity, because the internet is no longer something we take for granted as a neutral uh, domain, but rather it is something that we are contesting over, both everything from the fixed hardware of the location of uh, internet data cables to, uh, to the software of uh, the you know, location of servers and cloud computing and access to data. So all of these major infrastructures are geoeconomic and geopolitical battlefields. So Gideon, one of the really interesting features about all of those tools is that they are products of, of hyper-globalization, the fact that we are so connected to each other. Um, and at the same time, uh, they come in a moment when certainly President Obama and most European countries don't want to use military power as, as much as, uh, as they once did. I mean, how do these two bits fit together? Well, you know, it's interesting because we're, we're one, but we're not the same, as uh, Bono says. And uh, the, uh, there's a, an aspect in which the world is ever more tied together and yet still... Uh, divided in certain arenas from national communities, from other kinds of communities. And so the question of how you deal with um, conflicts when you're trying, uh, and, and contestation, when you're trying not to actually have fights uh, is a really different thing. Because there's a universe, in some ways, we're not a universal market in which everybody's an equal player on equal terms. Uh, in a fully interdependent arena, but we're also not autarkic. And so what you have is a situation of interdependence in which everybody affects everybody else in different ways, but that interdependence is asymmetrical. Um, some people can be hurt more. Uh, if you have a, if you're a big oil supplier in the old days and you controlled the market, then the person who was buying the oil from you uh, was dependent on you in a way you weren't dependent on them. 
but uh, if the energy market changes and now there are lots of different sources of supply, uh, then maybe the buyers now have more power than the sellers, uh, and so they can uh, do sanctions. If you have a big financial market like the United States uh, that people want to uh, have access to, or, or say, or China, or if you're setting financial standards for the world and you can manipulate that, you have the ability to weaponize interdependence in a way that allows you to achieve certain kinds of uh, self-interested goals or, or goals that are more than purely economic uh, in a way that imposes costs on somebody else and gets your agenda. But, but if you do that too much, the world fragments, you end up with autarkic relations and the connectivity breaks down. And so this question of how you jockey for position and try to gain an individual advantage without bringing the whole house of cards down in a way that hurts everybody uh, is this kind of new game of economic chicken that people are playing. So Hina, to what extent is this a Western game that's being played? Because the House of Cards was initially a Western House of Cards, the global financial system, mm -hmm. the way that uh, international institutions work. I mean, most of these institutions were created by the West and the West has benefited massively um, from them. How uh, and now they're being weaponized, you know, in the terms of the West to preserve this liberal uh, world order. But what does it look like from the global south? Does it look like a self-serving, hypocritical um, uh, project? Or is this genuinely about preserving universal rules? And how are non-Western countries reacting when the U.S., um, restricts access to uh, to, the, the, to to financial services to other uh, things through sanctions and through through other types of economic coercion. Okay, so that's the interesting thing. You see, because when we talk about universal rules or when we talk about global financial systems and global governance, etc., there's a presumption that this is all uh, democratic, and there's a presumption that this is all uh, based on equality. Uh, the models that we created were created by entities, countries, groups of countries which were in a position of power. Thus, the models that were created were at best uh, a model of first amongst equal rather than that of equality. Now, those countries who benefit from it would obviously require its preservation. Now, if you go in the political field, the Security Council is the biggest and the bestest reflection of it. If you go into the financial um, governance field, uh, you have the Bretton Woods Institution where you have the World Bank, which is going to be forever run by an American, and the IMF, which is going to be forever run by, as in the presidents would be, um, a European. And we seem to be fine with it, and it seems to be a good model that is working for everyone. And when, However, when AIIB or the Asian Investment Infrastructure Bank comes up and people talk about having an Asian president, we say, look, this is how the world is being spoilt. And so this is, I use these examples to say that what make we consider to be the norm by the West and the fair, equal model which everybody should espouse to for their own development and prosperity may not be viewed very similarly from the South and, or from a different lens or from different eyes. So really, and that's why the jockeying, because in my mind, I think what happened was that post-World uh, War II, you know, there was an era, uh, yes, intermittently there were changes, but there was an era where globalization was good for all. And everybody believed that they will benefit if they globalize. And we had the story of the Asian tiger. So the more you globalize, the more you're one with the financial global systems, with the governance systems, etc. that's what will get you benefit. Post-2008, that model changed. People felt that the less 
exposure you had, maybe you were better off. And there was, you know, there was an alternate way of thinking. And people started thinking of uh, ensuring that they were somewhat uh, camouflaged from the effects of globalization, because for, for, for once it could be a negative one. And therefore, the whole concept of, of gated globalization. Now, I believe geoeconomics is playing so brilliantly, by brilliantly, I mean so obviously on the trade field that it is unbelievable. So you have the TPP, which has just been signed. And right after signing that, a president of a country like the United States would say, yes, of course, we would not like China determine the rules. By saying that, you take away the economics and bring the politics in, and you're in the perfect world of geoeconomics. So really, the playing out of all of these things is quite phenomenal. So Prague, how does this end up? If everyone tries to play these different geoeconomic games, what kind of world order do we end up with? This almost picks up on both of the points that Gideon and Hina were making. First of all, uh, from a deep sort of structural long-term standpoint, the more infrastructure, the more connectivity, the more avenues and channels that countries have to trade with each other, the more resilient the system as a whole becomes. So Gideon was suggesting that if too many alternative mechanisms are created, such as AIB or otherwise, then the system fragments. But what China is trying to do is actually to have its cake and eat it too, to actually uh, uh, play within Western institutions to increase its voting share and rights and to shape how those institutions uh, do their lending while also building its own. And then even within its own institutions, to which, which it's also multilateralized like the AIB, to have uh, collective practices and dialogues and then within that to also be able to continue its bilateral practices. So in a way it's having three pieces of cake. Um, and I think that in the, in the long run, this, this infrastructure investment, this, uh, this connectivity that is sort of spreading around the world does actually create resilience. So for example, it may seem that the Arctic shipping routes are going to undermine the Straits of Malacca, uh, but it's, maybe it's good to have both. Uh, because you never know what might, might happen in terms of a closure of the Suez Canal uh, or something like that. Or that your, these Eurasian uh, trade corridors are going to undermine the Straits of Malacca and Arctic routes, but isn't it better to have all three? By definition, a resilient system is one in which you actually have multiple pathways to get to the same destination. So in the short term, we focus very much on the relative gains uh, from these sorts of investments and transactions, absolutely. But in the long run, we might actually all be better off uh, by having more connectivity and, and options rather than less. You know, I think this is all about the, this is Gideon, I think it's all about the future of the liberal order. One of the geniuses, the geniuses in the 1940s, the Western policymakers recognized that uh, after the troubles of the interwar years of economic depression, of uncoordinated actions which led to the rise of aggressive dictatorships after the devastation of World War II, that international affairs, both uh, security in the security realm and the economic realm could be a team sport rather than an individual sport. And the liberal order that they put in place, beginning with the Bretton Woods institutions and uh, continuing on through uh, NATO and the European Union and the Marshall Plan and a variety of other, a whole set of other uh, bilateral, regional and multilateral uh, agreements, helped knit together an increasing uh, portion of the world in ways that privileged cooperation over autarky and that led to growth and development and social and economic and political progress that have benefited a lot of people in a lot of places. And that liberal order has never been completely universal, but it's tried to get there. It's been directionally uh, universal. And the challenge, and I think... Over. Well, the over. Well, not. Well, this is a great question. Is it over? It's certainly fraying. And so the question is, 
whether that liberal order through which so much human development has occurred over the last seven decades can find a new lease on life, can be reinvigorated and, and reupholstered, or whether we're going to see it break up into a variety of different ones. And so with something like the AIIB, uh, it's exactly, a, it's, the AIIB is important precisely because it's an open question as to whether this currently represents a challenge to the existing liberal order or an additional part of it, an additional component, something that's complementary. And how that plays out and whether the order can be reinvigorated is going to be one of the great stories of the next decades. So, yeah, last kind of uh, question to the two of you, Hina and Parag. Do you think that, that it can be reinvented or what we're we talking about in the future is going to be several worlds that coexist with each no, other? I, I think the system will have to adapt. Uh, the system cannot possibly maybe, you know, I cannot say it cannot possibly exist. It might exist like that, but it has to respond to the forces of change and to the forces of just new, uh, you know, new, not systems, but entities and institutions which are emerging. I think it has the capacity to adapt, but it, it would obviously have to give away some of the power that it has traditionally enjoyed. And Prague? You know, I think the objectives of that at the time of the creation of this Western liberal order are still very valid. The question is, how are they going to be implemented? And we need to be careful not to conflate the goals and priorities that we have with the institutions and organizations that we've tra traditionally identified with them. So, for example, is it more important that we have regional security and that we are able to contain civil wars through regional peacekeeping organizations? Or is it more important that the UN Security Council in New York be the one sole you know, body that arbitrates international security? In fact, I believe the former is more important. There are many ways we can get to the goal of global security. Is it more important that free global free trade flourishes or is it more important that the World Trade Organization be the single organization that sits at the center of arbitrating all trade negotiations? In fact, global trade is flourishing, even though people are very pessimistic about the World Trade Organization. In fact, there are many efforts to develop regional security mechanisms, even though the UN Security Council is deadlocked. And when it comes to the AIB, we, is it, would we prefer that there be more infrastructure investment in the world that can promote connectivity and development and growth, or can it only be World Bank funded and World Bank led projects that are governed by Western standards? In fact, it's more important that that infrastructure be built than that only one organization be the driver of it. So I think we should always be focused on the goals because the goals that Gideon rightly celebrates that have been set out decades ago in a, in a collective intellectual vision are still more valid than ever and we haven't achieved them. But we know that they're not going to be achieved only by those traditional bodies alone. Well, I think the goals is actually what's changed because the goals uh, for the last few decades have basically been about increasing wealth and prosperity um, and what is, we're seeing now is an infusion of politics into these institutions where actually uh, strategic competition and relative advantage is as important as anything else and that is potentially what is going to lead to an unravelling of these institutions but maybe that's better than countries going to war with each other so it might be suboptimal from the dream of global government but certainly better than uh, mutually assured destruction. I'm maybe Pollyanna but I hold out hope that over time especially as development on various fronts continues to progress that there's no reason that those have to be mutually exclusive. There's no reason you can't get economic cooperation and political cooperation but it's going to be difficult and it's going to progress in fits and starts over the years to come. So that was a really interesting debate with people from the US, from Pakistan and Singapore. But there was a hole in our discussion. What does it mean for Europe? 
and the European Union. How well prepared are European states? How will they do in this new world? I talked to Sebastian Deline, who is a senior policy fellow at ECFR and a professor of international economics, about what he thinks this means for Europe. So, Sebastian, we've heard from the other people about what geoeconomics is. Um, the question which is in my mind is, is what does it mean for Europe? Because on the one hand, with the biggest market in the world and lots of regulations and the ability to use sanctions and other sorts of tools, it feels like maybe a geoeconomic world might be better for Europe than a classically geopolitical world where the countries with the biggest armies and the most aggressive foreign policies are the most powerful. Is that right? I mean, you, you would think so, that the biggest market, the biggest economy would have more power. And, um, well, let's put it that way. Europe could have more power in geoeconomic world. The problem is, and here this links a little bit to, to the traditional, um, well, not, not geoeconomic, but uh, geopolitical, geostrategic power, is that uh, we don't really have the institutions to use our power. I mean, even if, uh, if we could have the power, we, we don't use it. And this starts... Um, I mean, we don't have an institution which really frames European interest in a strategic way and then develops a coherent policy for it. Uh, the European Commission is, is very much focused on economic issues, but on, on issues like, well, having an open, liberal, global trade order, um, having efficient markets, regulate their own markets well, but no one really is, to, is uh, prepared to use this power for strategic aims. I mean, for that, first, you would have to, I mean, strategic aims means you need to define your where you want to go, and then you need to take the measures to get there. And it starts with the very beginning. I mean, where where does Europe want to go? Um, of course, you could now say, well, we, we want to go, let's say, punish Russia, um, but, but there it already starts. Uh, I mean, for the sanctions, we, we got a majority somehow, uh, but again, this is very fragile, as we saw from the discussion with the new Syriza government in, in Greece, uh, which at, for a moment toyed with the idea that they would not continue to prolong this. Um, and if, if it goes beyond something like, like the involvement in Ukraine to, to things which, which are more low level, uh, it's extremely difficult to find a majority here. And plus then, some of the actors are, are just not prepared to, to do anything. I mean, um, sanctions one thing, but if we think about all the financial issues, um, we, we have a central bank um, which shares responsibility for exchange rate policies with the European Commission. Um, it, is, it is not quite clear, and all they are not linked to uh, something which would be a traditional foreign ministry, which could, which could define strategic aims beyond just, just some economic considerations. And for, for all these structural reasons, uh, Europe is very well, uh, very ill-prepared to, to use its global economic power for, for strategic um, goals. So can we maybe go a little bit more detail into this question of, about the diversity of the European economy? Because what I suppose you're saying is that you're the, there'll be winners and losers from any attempt to introduce sanctions on other countries. And the losers, the biggest losers, might not be that interested in the impact of the, the policy. So, for example, it's possible that Poland is very keen to take a tough stance against Russia because it feels threatened by Russia. But Italy, 
which has a big gas deal with Russia, doesn't feel threatened by Russia, so therefore is less willing to take the hit that you would have to take to introduce sanctions. Is that the kind of um, story that you're talking about? Yeah, exactly. I mean, we all we all have all countries have very different structures. We have different trading partners. Um, some of of the countries trade mostly with well, actually Russia. Some of them trade mostly with the United States. Um, so the any cost of sanctions would fall disproportionately on one country or the other. And if that country doesn't have a specific interest in that specific sanction, um, they might not be willing to to go for it. Um, this is exacerbated by the fact that we don't have any any risk sharing or any cost sharing of of, of these issues. Um, is it in, possible to do that? Because on the Iran sanctions, for example, my understanding is that some of the member states that relied heavily on on Iran, like Greece, for example, were compensated by by others, or at least they were helped to find alternative supplies. Yeah, I mean, uh, we we had, I mean, we have the possibility, and I think this has been done in the past, to give uh, particular support to specific industries which have been hurt by a specific sanction. But this is, a, I mean, this is not a systematic thing which we are doing there, but it's something which is done on a case by case basis. And only if, I mean, if you really feel that that someone is is disproportionately hit here. Um, beyond that. We, we, we don't do this on, on, on a systematic way. So maybe we would need something like, like a fund which, which compensates countries which are um, hit by, by uh, well, some, some geostrategic or geoeconomic activities of, of, of the Eurozone. And how much of the barrier for Europeans is ideological? Because sometimes one feels that Europe is obviously the place where people felt their history ended in 1989 because the continent was reunited. We saw uh, a couple of decades of deep integration amongst ourselves and a completely different way of relating to each other, at least within the European Union. Does that mean that Europeans are maybe a bit more, um, still have a, a bit more of an idealistic idea about how globalizations run and win-win cooperation rather than seeing geopolitics in the economic relationships that we have with others? I mean, historically and traditionally, the European Commission sees itself and has been often seen as, a, a, well, some kind of technocratic government which tries to improve the, the well-being or economic welfare of, of, of the European citizen by liberalizing its own markets, but also push for an open um, and well, liberal international order in, in which everyone can can equally participate. Uh, and of course, this in a way stands in conflict with the use of geoeconomic powers because geoeconomic power means that you that you prefer some player uh, among others or before others because you want to you want to to maybe award that that country because they have helped in in some other conflict so there 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 really is a fundamental conflict here and i'm not sure whether you can solve this without having a really political government for for uh, the european union so final question uh sebastian how do you think if you had to rank the different countries in the world that use different types of power, I mean, you've got the US that controls the global financial system. You've got countries like China that are building uh, 
a different type of power based on infrastructure and physically linking different countries around the world. You've got countries like Russia and Saudi Arabia that use energy as a, as a vehicle. For Europe, people have talked about Europe as a regulatory superpower. Um, how much do you think that will allow Europe to thrive in the 21st century? And where would you rank Europe amongst all of these other great powers as a geoeconomic power? Uh, probably, well, probably before Russia and Saudi Arabia, but clearly behind the US and, and China. Um, and the, the, the reasoning here is it might be regulatory superpower, but it, 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 in its structure, it's only prepared to use this for, well, maybe some economic benefits, but not as a strategic uh, tool. And I'm, I, I don't really see how you can use this, especially with the regulatory structures we have in place, also the involvement of, of, of the companies, the corporate sector, and so on. Um, because, uh, as, as you said earlier, someone has to bear certain costs here, and no one is willing to, uh, to bear the cost of something non, of, of a non-economic objective of geoeconomics. Um, however, because the EU is large enough, they will be more powerful than Russia and Saudi Arabia in, in this respect. So that brings to an end a really interesting discussion about geoeconomics and what it means for Europe. Geoeconomics is a topic that we at ECFR have been working on a lot in recent months, and the results can be read about in our new essay collection on geoeconomics that is available on our website on www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. From Gideon Rose, Hina Rabani Carr, Parakana and Sebastian Duleen and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye for now. The researcher of our podcast is Ulrika Franke and our editor is Katarina Botel-Azzinaro. Mm-hmm.